0: This is the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 68. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Start scouting for the fall hunting season now by downloading the Onyx Hunt app from the Apple iTunes or Google Play Store today. Know where you stand with Onyx Hunt. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. You haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. Find out more about the Pine Ridge experience by visiting PineRidgeGrouseCamp.com. And by Dogtra Collars, for over 30 years, Dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Find out more about Dogtra Collars and all of their products by visiting Dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition, Yukonuba premium performance dog food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters, When your boots have the proper tread, you'll never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't cross your mind. When your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordian Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt and not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about the gear, guides, and the expertise at Gordian Sons Outfitters by visiting gordiansons.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels, kennels built to last a lifetime, one-piece mold design. Frame steel door everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip for a limited time head to dakota283kennels.com use the promo code p u f i to receive a free forever insert with purchase of a g3 kennel or you can use the promo code p u d d to receive a free dine and dash product with the purchase of any kennel from dakota283.com All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Neil from New Zealand. That's right, New Zealand, way across the pond. Neil, thank you for listening. I knew we had some listeners from out of the country, but I hadn't heard from a ton of them until I got an email from Neil. He will have some Project Upland gear on the way to New Zealand very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway all you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show you can do that in a number of ways including leaving the podcast a rating leave us a review subscribe to the podcast share the podcast send us some feedback guest suggestion you name it we'd love to hear from our listeners send me an email at nick.larson@northwoodscollective.com. at northwoodscollective.com all right another reminder for an upcoming interview with owner of no limits kennels dog trainer jc bosch Go back and check out episode number 32 if you want to get to know him a little bit better. He's coming on the podcast real soon. We're looking for questions from our listeners. Anything you want to know about bird dogs, hunting, training, JC will do his best to tell you what he knows. And if he doesn't know, I'm sure he'll tell you that too. He's a great guy. Can't wait to interview him. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, let's do it. Today's guest is from the big sky bird hunters association that's right big sky country out west montana from missoula our guest today is ben diebel and we are chatting about the reintroduction of the sharp-tailed grouse to western montana populations were established they are no longer there conditions appear to be prime for reintroduction and thanks to some new forensic data ben diebel the folks that he's working with, the partners in conservation, the Big Sky Bird Hunters Association, everybody involved in this project is very excited about the potential, the reintroduction of sharp-tailed grouse to western Montana, and we talk all about it on today's episode of the Project Up the Podcast. Let's welcome to the show from the Big Sky Bird Hunters Association, Ben Diebel. All right, Ben. Here we go. We're on the Project Upland podcast. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Mr. Ben Diebel. How are you today?
1: Doing really good. We got pounded by some thunderstorms last night in western Montana. I hope it hasn't hurt the hatch, um, but uh, other than being a little sleep deprived, it's a good morning.
0: <laughs> that is that is good, but uh, with a little bit of caution. Uh, it is July third today, so obviously we've got young birds on the ground. What do you what do you think? Are you are you kind of past you know from a montana perspective where you're at are we past the the real fledgling stage are the birds getting healthy now
1: well uh most of the sharp tails and sage grouse and pheasants probably hatched um a month or even more ago okay um and so those birds should be doing pretty well um hungarian partridge hatch peaks about now um Uh and so it's a possibility that they might be hurt if they got Uh, too much rain on them and and especially if it stays cold for the next two or three days so far it doesn't look like it's gonna
0: okay that's cool and and typically the biggest threat to prairie birds is you never want to see hail right
1: right um hail can be a, a huge and instantaneous problem for for chicks and even adult birds um, but luckily it's usually fairly isolated bands of hail will come through and, and, uh, you know, one side of a ranch might get hammered uh, and the other side doesn't get affected at all. So, sure. um, that, that is one thing to watch for. If you end up out in a place where, uh, uh, it looks like there should be some birds this fall and, uh, you run your dog for an hour or two and find nothing, it might be hail. So move down the road.
0: Yeah. All right, Ben. Well, we're, we're we're jumping right in here, but I, I think to start, you mentioned western Montana, but let's have you go a little bit more detail, kind of put us on the map where you are, where you call home base, and, and where uh, the bulk of your adventures take place.
1: Yeah, well, I, I've lived in Missoula, uh, in the west uh, edge of the state for the last 25 years, um, and uh, uh, it's just sort of an abundance of riches as far as upland birds go uh, in the surrounding country. Uh, you know, we have... Five species of grouse and uh, plus ring pheasants, turkeys, and Hungarian partridge, which were introduced. Um, the grouse are all native here, um rough, dusky spruce, sharptailed and sage grouse.
0: Yeah, that is a, definitely an embarrassment of riches. that's uh that's a wide variety of species, are you? So you've got within a day you could access all of those. That's right. Excellent. And you are uh, associated with the Big Sky Upland Bird Association. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, it's sort of the typical local um, sportsman's group that has been organized in in western Montana for about the last 30 years. It was originally put together by some retirees from the U.S. Forest Service who um, were Upland bird hunting fanatics. And um, we're not a big group. We have about 100 members. Uh, in the state, uh, plus some members from out of state that travel here to hunt. Um, We put out a newsletter, have a nice ball cap, um, uh, and uh, uh, put out, in in fact, right now I'm getting ready to mail a a hatch forecast uh, to all our members so people have an idea where birds might be strong or weak uh, in the state this year.
0: Interesting. Should we, uh, would we be, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to spoil everything for your newsletter readers, but could you, uh, could you run us around the state a little bit and kind of hit on, hit some of the high notes on what you have seen uh, throughout the, throughout the spring, just because I know we have a lot of listeners that, that do travel to, to Montana to hunt.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I would love them to become members of the association. And and then we, and then we can mail it right to their door. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's one of those things. It's, it's an interesting kind of challenge right now as, as we deal with different types of media and different ways to keep people engaged at the local level and, and, uh, help fund local organizations is we like to hold something back just for our members.
0: Oh, certainly. Yeah. Do you work with, you know, I, you mentioned that you're very passionate bird hunters and so you know you get together and you engage with each other through this association do you find yourself i suppose you know out that out that direction you probably maybe have a pheasants forever presence you're not going to have rough grouse society i mean are are there other conservation organizations that you work with partner with to to get habitat work done how does that work or are you guys kind of on an island out there
1: Well, um, sure. There's, you know, one of the things about Montana is is generally it's really known as big game country. So there's a plethora of organizations like the Rocky mountain elk foundation is actually headquartered here in Missoula, um, that, that work on big game issues. Um, there's a, a smaller number of groups and individuals that work on upland bird issues. And, and our association, in fact, is the only one that tries to work on all upland bird issues. There's other specialists, uh, groups like Pheasants Forever Chapter, um, which has done some great things in, in western Montana and other parts of the state. Um, and uh, there's a, a, a turkey federation group, um, and, and they've helped reintroduce or actually introduce turkeys for the first time to a lot of Montana. Um, and uh, what we find is we really enjoy working with um, the agencies, especially the state uh, game and fish agency, uh, some of the tribes, Um, and, uh, we, we work real hard to advocate for resources going to upland bird research and habitat, uh, acquisition and access, um, those kinds of things.
0: Okay. Well, we're definitely going to talk about, we're going to definitely going to talk more about conservation on today's show, but to start, we kind of got to lay down the, some groundwork and we got to get a little bit of history. We are talking about grouse today. Hopefully the listeners will be excited to know that we're not talking about the grouse that I always talk about, which is the rough grouse, we're talking about sharp grouse, which has quickly become my second favorite grouse. Uh, They're an awesome bird. We're talking Montana sharp tails today, Ben. Give us the the basics of, and I guess that's probably a terrible word to use because this situation is is probably not going to be boiled down to basics. But tell me what's going on on the landscape, what it looked like at one time, what it looks like now, and what we're trying to, what you guys are trying to help accomplish.
1: Yeah okay, well we've got five species of native grouse in Montana, and um, the one that you see a lot in headlines is the sage grouse. Yes, uh, because it was proposed for addition to the endangered species list, and we've we've lost sage grouse um, from some areas in Montana, but we still have the second best population in the nation, second only to Wyoming's. Um, But the other species that has had a large range contraction in Montana is the sharp-tailed grouse. It has disappeared from the western third of the state, the intermountain valleys, the the relatively small valleys that are surrounded by timbered ridges. Um, Each of them used to have populations of of sharp-tailed grouse in them, um, and they disappeared around 2000. Um, I actually had radios on a handful of the last birds in the late 1990s and that population was in the upper Blackfoot Valley and I about an hour outside Missoula and I watched it disappear um, as I studied it. Um, So basically ever since um, we've been agitating to have them reintroduced and it's taken 20 years but we have gotten to the process where we think we're right on the cusp of starting a reintroduction.
0: You mentioned to me as we were chatting a little bit before this uh, a little while ago. You did you did a thesis paper on on sharp tails in, when you were going for your master's, correct?
1: Right, that was back in 1996. I finished that.
0: So 96. What what was the what was that that paper about?
1: Um, it was uh, uh, it involved documenting the breeding leks that were known in the upper Blackfoot Valley, um, which. Uh, at that point, were the only sharptails known to exist in western Montana. Um, it involved putting uh, radio collars on them and and following some of them, uh, as well as um, uh, studying them year round, both during the breeding season and in in the winter. Um, their their behavior and and habitat use. Um, it also involved actually touring a lot of sharp grouse habitat elsewhere in the west to get an idea of how other managers were um working with their sharp-tailed grouse populations to try and conserve them and and enhance them.
0: All right, Ben. So first things first, we've got a population of native birds, sharp-tailed grouse. They were populated in a region, they are no longer. What happened? Do we know?
1: Um we have a a, a general idea. Um the The habitat in in Western Montana has always been um, more pockets of habitat. It's been these valley floors um, in in valleys that are you know anywhere from um, forty to uh, seventy five miles long. And um, those grasslands are the areas that had the heaviest impacts of of early settlers in Montana. Um, a lot of the the valley floors were originally homesteaded in 160 acre tracks like they were, uh, in a lot of, um, the country. And it turned out that these patches of, of, um, uh, farms, small farms, small ranches were in fact much too small for, um, people to survive on long-term. And there's been a, a process of consolidation ever since where we now have bigger and bigger, um, ranches in most cases in these locations than, than, uh, a hundred years ago. Um, what happened during that period was very intensive use by by livestock for example um in in the Bitterroot Valley uh, there was probably 2 million sheep a 100 years ago um and today there are virtually none um the the livestock or the, the wool industry has collapsed um and those animals aren't on the landscape anymore um a lot of these areas that were native grasslands were turned into uh, wheat farms at that time and wheat farming has now been abandoned from a lot of those locations and they have in many cases come back as native grassland so um, the habitat actually looks better in a lot of cases than it did a hundred years ago
0: interesting that's kind of where i was you know in my mind as you were saying that i was angling towards these birds were there there was some there were some, you know, large large scale impacts on the landscape. Now we've seen some of that fade away and ultimately it sounds like what you're seeing is that native habitat is coming back and it's kind of looking prime, but we lost those populations of birds. And one thing I I kind of understand about sharp is they certainly need large contiguous tracts of habitat so they can move, navigate across the landscape, maintain, you know, diverse breeding populations. And if, you know, if a population gets really isolated, that's with any species, really, that's a population that's kind of ripe for, you know, extinction.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and one of the things about sharp tails, and this is maybe getting a little bit down in the weeds, but it's, it's an important detail is any of our lecking birds where, um, the males gather in a single location. Females come in and, and mate with the dominant male in that breeding lek. Um, tend to more than other birds, like uh, t- tend to more than, say, something that pairs up like um, uh, gray partridge, um, Hungarian partridge, one-to-one. Um, lecking birds can much more rapidly become genetically inbred. And small populations over a relatively short period of time um, can become so inbred um, that their um, fertility starts to drop, or at least the hatchability of their eggs starts to drop. Um, This was documented in prairie chickens by a researcher named Ron Westermeyer in in Illinois, who who monitored populations there for over 35 years. Um, And, What they found is that even with improving habitat quality, um, the prairie chicken populations he was watching weren't growing. Um, And I think we've had a a similar type of um, thing happen with sharptails in western Montana, um, where we've ended up with small isolated populations in these valleys that eventually winked out, even if the habitat was in reasonably good condition, um, because of loss of fertility due to inbreeding.
0: Okay. And so now the way that you're looking at it is yeah, we lost these birds Now we're, we're talking about a native species. So it's not, you know, it's not like you guys are really reaching to say, Hey, we want to introduce something here. That's, you know, exotic or, um, you know, hopefully not invasive, but, uh, we all know as upland hunters, there are, there are some species that are exotic, but not necessarily invasive. And they can add value and, you know, they can survive on the landscape. The gray partridge being one pheasant being another, but sharp-tailed grouse are native birds, so you guys are approaching this situation now thinking we've got the habitat; it's ready for reintroduction. Let's put some birds back there and see what happens.
1: Um, yeah, and and there there are some more details or some more background to the story too, because um, there's in in the um, historical accounts and and even fairly recent textbooks. It's assumed that there were two different subspecies of sharptails in Western Montana. Wow. Um, the ones that are occurred east of the continental divide that are still very abundant, which is called uh, the plains sharptail. And then it had been assumed that everything west of the continental divide, um, is, uh, the Colombian sharptail. Um, that's a species that extends all the way into you know Washington, Idaho, Oregon, um, Nevada. And, um, the thing about Colombian sharptails is uh, they have become pretty scarce in most of those states. And, in fact, I think Idaho is the only state that still has a hunting season for them. Um, it was assumed that the birds I was studying in western Montana were Colombians, but we didn't know that. We'd never done any genetic analysis. And so... Every bird that I touched during my research, I took feather and blood samples from um, in, in the hope that at some point we would be able to do genetic analysis. Um, there's also, uh, and these were not uh, easy to find, but we also found a 100-year-old taxidermied sharptails that were actually in a, in a scientific collection at one of the universities here. And um, I went and also harvested samples of feather from those um, stuffed museum birds. Um, and eventually, we raised the funds to do a genetic analysis, comparing those with things that were definitely Colombian sharptails in, in the western states and, and birds from central Montana all the way to Nebraska, sharptails there. And what we found was that, in fact, historically, what we had in western Montana west of the continental Divide was the eastern subspecies, the plains sharptail. And so that defied all conventional wisdom, but it suddenly made this reintroduction project potentially a lot easier um, because we would have a source of birds within Montana. We could move them from one side of Montana to the other side of Montana. Um, And uh, we also wouldn't run into any of the... Uh, potential political complications of trying to reintroduce a rare bird into western Montana that could potentially end up on the endangered species list in the future.
0: One could easily see how that situation could get very, very complex if you talk about, you know, relocating a bird that is rare already. Let's dive just a little bit, you know, I don't want to get too far off track, but a little bit into the Colombian sharptail versus the eastern sharptail. I've never heard of that prior to today, and but what are the discrepancies there? Is it basically basically just the genetic code, and to the naked eye, these birds are, are going to be pretty identical? Or what are the differences?
1: They, they are generally um, very similar. The Colombian sharptail um, may be a little bit smaller in weight than the Plains sharptail, um, like 15% less in weight on, on average. Um, they're a little bit darker in color. And um, they inhabit a little bit different habitat. Um, They tend to inhabit a a sagebrush uh, steppe grassland um, as opposed to just a pure grassland. Um, And uh, so um, we don't know if they can interbreed. They probably can. We, We think they have very similar habitats in terms of, you know, how they get through their their year um, in terms of what they feed on and, and, and uh, how far they move and, and um, their breeding system and that sort of thing. Um, But they are a a Western subspecies that's been recognized for a long time. We just happen to be right at the boundary between uh, what was assumed to be the boundary between one subspecies and the other. And, and um, we found out that the, the subspecies hadn't read the book, and and uh, <laughs> um, the the eastern subspecies that ended up on the west side of Montana.
0: Yeah, sure. So probably safe to say, you know, these two species were, you know, they were the same bird at one time, but for one reason or another, they the populations got separated, and they, you know, they evolved a little bit differently. But it's another one of those classic cases where, you know, modern day forensics kind of uh, kind of flipped history upside down a little bit, and you realize that you had the Eastern subspecies in that area.
1: Right. And it gave us an opportunity to do some um, conservation restoration that we might otherwise not have had. Uh, The genetics told us exactly what uh, we needed to know.
0: All right. So what's the plan right now, 2019 going forward, reintroduction has not happened yet. You've made progress. What's the plan going forward and who's involved?
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, full disclosure, um, we've had some, some great partners on this project. Um, the effort is going to be led by Montana fish, wildlife, and parks, the state agency. Um, the funding for some of it, um, is still to be determined, but the, the funding to date has been a combination of private monies and, and actually funds from the Bonneville power administration mitigation funds for a large lake that they built years ago, which drowned a lot of sharp tail grouse habitat in Northwest Montana. Um, And um, uh, there's several steps still ahead um, before we actually start moving birds, though we've come a long ways. Um, uh, After we did the genetic work, the next thing we needed to do was put together a reintroduction plan. And that was drafted mostly by a man by the name of Dr. Lance McNew at uh, Montana State Bozeman and one of his graduate classes on restoration ecology. They put together about a 100 page analysis of what has succeeded and failed in sharp tail reintroduction around the country in the past and um, analyzed what they thought would be needed um, to have a successful reintroduction into western Montana. That involved looking at the amount of habitat and the quality of habitat. Um, What they found was that some of our habitat in western Montana today is actually in better condition than the habitat where we still have sharptails in central Montana. And so that was a, a good sign. Yep. They also, yeah, they also did some state of the art um, uh, genetic and population modeling um, where they ran a lot of different scenarios looking at how many birds would they have to move a year for how many bird for, for how many years and, and how many of those birds needed to survive every year to establish a population. And, Under some of those scenarios, they have a like a 95 percent confidence in reestablishing a population that will persist for at least 50 years. So um, that looks very promising as well. Um, Some of the other things that still um, uh, need to happen is. Um, There has been a public process um, uh, talking about this reintroduction effort where um, there's been comment periods and documents put out and and proposed actions by the state. And generally, the feedback we've gotten has been very positive. Um, But there still needs to be another level of outreach to landowners because most of the places where we're going to be potentially putting birds is a mix of public and private land. And when we turn these birds out, we really don't know where they're going to go and where they're going to end up. And even if we turn them out on public land, they very well could end up on private land. So it's important to have some buy-in or understanding by landowners in those uh, valleys um, uh, so that um, they potentially could be you know, enthusiastic supporters of the project or at least tolerate um, some scientists and biologists running around their valley. Um, trying to figure out where these birds have gone with their radio callers um, and maybe even do some some uh, nesting studies, nest success or failure studies um, uh, and learn what the mortality factors are with these birds, these new populations and in, in locations they haven't been in for a long time. Um, so that, that's an important process that um, Fish, Wildlife and Parks is, is going to be leading um, over the, the balance of the summer here. The other thing we still have to do before we move birds um, is find large, healthy leks in central Montana that can uh, tolerate some uh, heavy trapping. Um, and uh, the, the way we're describing that is we want it to be leks that are more than um, 25 males. Um, and that suggests that there's probably 25 or 50 hens attending that lek. Um, and that, that, that lek could handle um, having some, some trapping of both sexes off of it um, because we don't want to damage leks um, in the source populations um, uh, to bring them to Western Montana. We want to basically move surplus birds to Western Montana.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Uh, I want to I talk a little bit about the outreach stuff. But first, regarding the research, uh, some cool stuff there. Definitely you have to get excited about the fact that some of the models are are predicting you know with 95 percent confidence a population could survive and thrive for 50 years i mean it's it's a model at the end of the day but that's definitely something to to get excited about what came out of those studies from a from the perspective of how many birds are they talking uh how many locations would they reintroduce what does that what does that reintroduction kind of look like i'm just curious
1: Yeah, um, what the commission has authorized so far um, is uh, to move 180 birds a year from uh, elsewhere in Montana to to western Montana. Uh, The three valleys that have been identified um, for initial releases are uh, the Blackfoot Valley, the Deer Lodge Valley, uh, and the Bitterroot Valley. And and each each one of those valleys may be familiar to your listeners or have their their own kind of famous features. Um, the Blackfoot Valley is a is a place that was made famous uh, by the river that runs through it. Um, uh, that was the subject of uh, a book called "A River Runs Through It" by Norman Maclean, which is a, ah. a very famous fly fishing book and film. Um, the uh, the Deer Lodge Valley has. A, a bit more of a notorious reputation It it's uh where montana's state penitentiary for men is um and it also is the location of the Butte anaconda copper mines which were once the largest in the world and that's um produced they produce most of the copper for electrification of the u.s and most of the ammunition we used in world war one and two um and and now those mines are all closed, and there's actually a large restoration effort happening in that valley, which will include creation of thousands of acres of grassland. And and then the the last valley is is the Bitterroot Valley, um, and and that valley um, actually used to be the mecca for pheasant hunting in western Montana around World War II, and and actually a little earlier in 1925 a physician there by the name of Thornton imported the first German short haired pointers into the U S uh, from Austria. And, and so, um, each of them have their own kind of fit and old own kind of communities, um, that we're, we're hoping these birds will be welcomed in.
0: So myself being unfamiliar with those mountain ranges, you know, from a, from a boots on the ground perspective, I suspect there are some upland hunting options there already. I would imagine you've got some of the different species of grouse within each. Are any of those barren of upland hunting opportunities right now where the sharptail would be new or is, this, or is it going to be added to all those?
1: Yeah. All of these valleys you can find, um, I would say, three or four or more species of upland birds in already. Okay. And, and, and so the sharptails will, will just be icing on the cake if we can get them to take.
0: Yeah, which, you know, that, that bodes well, I think, for the sharptail just because upland birds are typically needy species in the sense that, you know, they need ideal conditions to really survive and thrive. So if you've got upland birds there already, you know, knowing that they're using slightly different habitats, uh, I still think that bodes well for the sharptails.
1: It does. And and each of these valleys is sort of different in its own way. Like, like for example, the, the Bitterroot Valley still has... Uh, pheasants in, in abundance in the right habitats. Um, but the Blackfoot Valley doesn't and never has um, uh, because it's about 2,000 feet higher. It gets a lot more snow in the winter um and uh pheasants can't overwinter there um with 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 you know maybe 10 or 15 feet of snow most winters um and uh, whereas sharptails can go up to the the shrub canopy um they eat they spend the entire winter eating buds off of the tops of choke cherry and serviceberry and hawthorn and and um even aspen and cottonwoods so um, that's what gives them uh, a niche in, in one of those valleys that pheasants can't exploit.
0: We paused this episode of the podcast for just a moment to let you know that today's show is also brought to you by Trinity Kennels, home of the Epanuel Breton. Trinity Kennels French Brittany Spaniels are from champion bloodlines, field tested, and family approved for over 30 years. Coming from the most prestigious and elite French bloodlines, as well as American champions, Trinity Kennels is committed to producing premier Epanui Albertones for the field trailer and foot hunter alike. We now return to the Project Upland Podcast. Yeah, from what I understand, Sharptails are, you know, being a native bird, they're quite adaptive to their surroundings in that, you know, they can you can find them out in wide open grasslands where you can't even see a tree. Uh, But then you can also find them in areas that are very shrubby, you know, with, with quite a few trees. And, you know, I know up in Canada, they, they can, they can be in, you know, very wooded areas. And even here in my home state of Minnesota, there are areas where you can find, you know, sharp tails and rough grouse kind of right on the edge of some of that cover.
1: Yeah, that's right. They, they are um, a lot more generalist than um, some species in in terms of being able to, Spend some time near uh, trees and shrubs, um, and and a majority of time in in grassland. Um, you know, one of the things if if you uh, have eaten, uh, say, uh, sharp-tailed grouse, or, and compared it alongside a a pheasant at the same time, um, the sharp-tail has a much darker breast meat than a pheasant. Yes. Um. The the explanation for that uh, physiologically is um, pheasant aren't good at uh, long duration flight, um, they can they can flush and you know maybe go 500 yards, but then they hit the ground running with the dark meat on their legs. Um, whereas sharp tails can get up in the air and and fly long duration. Um, they they can probably go you know 10 miles at a at a go and. We, we see birds during severe winters move long distances. I mean, there, there's accounts of, of sharp tailed showing up 80 miles in the middle of a bad winter um, from places they're ever seen otherwise. Um, and whereas a pheasant probably spends its entire life on a, on a couple square miles of land, it simply physically can't move that far.
0: Yeah, that is one of those interesting things that, you know, upland hunters, I think, tend to see that a lot if you get the chance to hunt different species that breast meat and I'm no biologist, but the birds that fly more and fly longer durations, they have more uh, blood flow and blood vessels into the breast meat. So it's, it's darker in color. Is that, is that correct, Ben?
1: Yeah, that, that's uh, putting it simply. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on there.
0: Yeah. So if you, you know, rough grouse, very, very light meat. I mean, they spend much of their time on their feet. They don't do a lot of long duration flights, sharp tails, kind of the opposite of that. Um, interestingly, there are there are sharptails in northern Wisconsin, and the problem that they're facing is they don't have a lot of contiguous expansive habitat. And I'm actually going to be doing a podcast with some folks from Wisconsin, various agencies, about Wisconsin sharptails coming up here later this month. So I'm excited about that. But they've they've been looking at uh, you know how can they best manage habitat and perhaps expand populations of these native birds here. And they found some very interesting, you know, where you've got a couple of really isolated pockets of cover, but they had, whether it was a radio collared hen or some way of tracking this hen where she was released. And she, in some crazy fashion, found one of these other pieces of habitat, you know, migrated. And it was just, on the surface, it was very hard to even understand it. From a human perspective, it was like, how could this bird find this other piece of habitat, but I'm sure that nature's, nature's got the explanation and it's pretty simple.
1: <laughs> right. And there's also sort of uncanny accounts of released sharptails, uh, in, in a new location showing up on the lex site yes. of yep. other sharptails. Um, uh, and, and even during the non-breeding season, when there's no other sharptails there, and so they have some kind of a search image for lex sites that we don't completely understand, and and uh, they're able to find um, where other sharp tails should be, even if they aren't at the moment.
0: That's exactly right, and I think that was that was part of the story that I heard from Wisconsin. I'll have to I'll have to make sure to ask the guests I have on about that to uh, to get that story because yeah, that's very interesting how they whether it's you know from an aerial perspective they know how to they know how to find these leks, but it's just it's quite amazing.
1: Right. Right. So one more piece of habitat, because we're sort of uh, talking about it a little bit, um, that's interesting for western Montana is, um, in part, we think one of the reasons sharptails have disappeared from these uh, isolated valleys is because evergreen trees have come in and encroached. Um, And generally, um, sharptails don't like Douglas fir and ponderosa pine and lodgepole, mostly because those are good habitats for birds of prey, especially things like goshawks that are mm-hmm. um, uh, grouse specialists. And and so that's sort of the way that habitat has been segregated over time here in, in western Montana is we've ended up with a lot more rough grouse and blue grouse in a lot of these places than sharptails, which have declined to zero probably because of er- evergreen tree encroachment. But one of the new habitat trends that's happening in in montana like a lot of places is is climate change um and we're getting more fire in western montana than we've had for at least a century um and a lot of tree stands are getting burned um you know thousands of acres um both uh intentionally and unintentionally because of longer drier summers um the other thing that's happening um is that Um, we're getting less evergreen tree encroachment in some of the edges of some of these valleys because summer is too um, hot and dry for the seedlings um, to succeed. And so what this suggests, and we're just beginning to see it, but is that in the future we're going to have more grassland in western Montana than we have now. And so it only makes sense for us to maybe have more sharptails in western Montana than we've had for a while.
0: Sure, yeah, changing... Changing climate, changing environment. I mean it never stops and I feel like we're always kind of behind the curve, but we do what we can, right?
1: Right. And and you know, if you see trends in habitat on the landscape, work with it and, and pick species that are likely to, to be winners in those habitat change trends.
0: Sure. All right. So back backing up a little bit, you had talked about outreach and I mentioned it earlier. I would guess that the pushback on a reintroduction of sharptails, and native grouse species, to a specific habitat would be, I would guess the pushback would be minimal, but that would be, that'd be a big assumption to assume that it would be zero. Has there been pushback? What are the questions, what are the concerns that people have about this initiative?
1: You know, we haven't actually heard many yet. Okay. Um, the, the, the ranchers that I was working with, 25 years ago when I was uh, on the uh, on the ground uh, every day that I could be uh, often on, on those private ranches where I got permission to access they were happy to let me on um, they they liked the birds they remembered there being more sharptails in the past um, they were hoping I was learning something about them that would help them uh, survive into the future. Um some of these were just wonderful old uh characters. Uh, There's one rancher in particular I remember working with for for years who was in his 80s. He loved sharptails. He loved all wildlife. Um the first time I ever met him, he was um standing in his long john underwear at six in the morning out in front of his ranch house feeding a white-tailed deer peanut butter off a wooden spoon. <laughs> um he, he, he was just that kind of guy. Yeah. And and we drove around the valley for for uh, years together. Um, he'd show me places where he used to see sharp tails and I'd show him where I was still finding them. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And, and, and he's passed now, but there's, there's more people like him in these valleys. Um, and, and I don't think we're going to have, um, much of any serious concern, especially moving, uh, a bird that's common in one part of Montana into a, a place where we hope they'll be common again. Um, and, and to put it in perspective. Um, I, and I should have said this earlier. Um, sharp-tailed grouse in western Montana, we believe, are the only bird that didn't uh, that existed here during Lewis and Clark that don't exist now. Um, and wow. so it's the last species um, to restore that would give us uh, again a full complement of the original uh, bird life of western Montana.
0: Yeah, it's kind of easy to see how the the path would be paved for again a native native species. They are Oftentimes, you know, you don't see them. I would feel like as a landowner, it would be another species of wildlife that you would enjoy seeing on the landscape. You know, they're not intrusive. They're not in your face. They're specialists. They're making use of of the habitat that's on the ground. So I, I wouldn't imagine there would be much, much pushback, but you never know.
1: Well, and, and the, the exception that comes to mind for me, and, and I think it's understandable to some degree, is... Um, a lot of these these ranches are 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 historic. They've been there a long time. Um, they're They're family run um, beef and and hay operations. Um they're not particularly lucrative. Um, people are 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 getting by. Um, when When beef prices are up, they're they're they feel good, and when beef prices are down, um, they they wait till next year um, to to have good income again. Uh, And so some of them are are working just on the margins already. And they have a lot of pressure um, from Montana's existing abundant wildlife. Um, We have deer herds in a lot of places that are much larger than our ideal objectives for um, the landscape. Similar with elk herds. Um, Elk are constantly... Um, breaking into haystacks and other things we now also have been successful at conserving grizzly bears on the landscape and so ranches that i was on 20 years ago where you never thought about a grizzly bear um now might have eight grizzly bears on it in a day um, and so these landowners are already feeling pressure from wildlife and um, is this just one more species they might feel some kind of pressure about um i don't think so um, but we need to have, um, you know, uh, good, meaningful conversations where, um, we listen to them and they listen to us and, um, we can give some assurances that this isn't going to be just another straw on the back of their camel. Yeah,
0: certainly that is the right way to go about it. I mean, don't assume anything and eyes and ears open. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. We've talked a fair bit about the Montana sharptails, the reintroduction, the history. Um, I'll, I'll ask you a little bit about just kind of generally upland bird hunting Montana, but I'd like to tie a bow on the western sharptail reintroduction. What are we looking at as far as reintroduction? Could it potentially happen? When could it potentially happen? I know there's you're not at the finish line yet.
1: Right. Well, um, the technique that is being looked at is to initially trap and release just males um and uh it would probably be a fall trap and release um in october um, what a lot of people don't know is sharptails males at least will attend the lex in october for a short period of time and uh it's probably the way that birds of the year males of the year learn where they need to show up next spring to maybe successfully breed and, um, so we would trap birds in October and put radios on some portion of them and, and release them into these, uh, Western valleys, um, one or more. And, um, then we would see if, um, uh, how they survived the winter and would know where they potentially set up lex the next spring. If we were successful, we would have males displaying all in one place, um, the next spring. Then that spring we would trap hens and more males and bring them to that new location. And, and we're hoping we would anchor a lek, um, in that location that way. Um, the, the trapping, uh, the translocation and trapping project is, is timed for a, a three years of initially moving birds, five years of watching how they do. And, um, uh, it could happen uh, as soon as uh, the fall of, of 2020. Uh, we okay. could do the first trapping and moving of birds. Um, we don't know if we'll ever be able to hunt sharptails in western Montana again. Um, that's my objective. It's not necessarily everybody's objective. Some people would just like to see them back here on the landscape. and uh, And that's fine. Um, but if we're wildly successful, um, I, I hope we would have an upland bird hunting season for them in our Western Valley someday, uh, perhaps, uh, within my lifetime.
0: Yeah, that's a great lead in. Cause that's where I was, I was going to take that knowing that you are an upland bird hunter. Certainly that is, it's part of what's, what's driving you. But at the end of the day, it's your appreciation for the bird and you're wanting to see it back in a place that it once was, that is, you know, that's first and foremost, if, if you're very successful, that's a win-win, that's a, that's a win for the birds and that's a win for the upland hunter, but, but first and foremost, it's for the birds.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and tails are a fascinating bird. They're, they're just wonderful um, to watch on the breeding lex in in the spring. Um, Anybody who hasn't seen them um, should, should go and, and do that um they're very animated very interesting um people that have no exposure um, to wild birds if, if they see that just once either personally or on video um it can just fire a fascination in in the species and and other birds and from that grows an interest in in the habitat and the places where they're found and and um any number of other directions that the, the interest can go so i think there'll be great value in having the bird back in in western montana even if we can't hunt them i'm hoping there will always be some place we can go to hunt them and and i think there will be in central and eastern montana um a lot of those landscapes are are still losing human population um uh, the ranches and and farms um, tend to consolidate and get bigger and bigger um and uh the birds are doing very well there and, and should be forever
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more as far as just the general appreciation of the sharp tail. They were a bird that, you know, I knew they existed, but I knew very little about them. And Uh, I, I have them, there are actual sharp tails within an hour of where I live here in Duluth. And it's, it's kind of crazy because i never even really thought about it. And, you know, taking one trip out West last year, hunting them just for whatever reason that gave me the appreciation for it. You know, that's one thing that, one thing that hunting can do, but also going in and seeing a lek in the spring. I have not done that yet. I really want to, but it's just one of those things where these birds, they've been here for a long time. And sometimes it just takes that, that moment or that day in the field to really ingrain that appreciation. But once you have it, it's, it's pretty special.
1: Yeah. And, and just from the the hunting perspective, I mean, they are a wonderful quarry um when you're out um uh, pursuing sharptails in a grassland uh, first thing in the season whether it's september or october depending where you live um they can hold wonderfully for a pointing dog i, I don't think there's hardly any bird any native bird anyway um that is uh as wonderful to hunt with a with a, a well handling uh, pointing dog than sharptails are and um it, you can really have some you know bucket list forever experiences out there um hunting among uh, whether you're in prairies or or CRP grasslands or or other types of shrublands um across the the country and um you know the other thing about this project and, and you get a lot of exposure to these kinds of things but um it's wonderful to be involved in a project that really is about hunter conservationists um, being, being strong advocates and partners, um, financially and brain space and, and, uh, energy as volunteers with establishing, conserving and, and seeing, a, a species they pursue thrive on the landscape. Um, and so I'm hoping I'll be able to participate in something like this for the rest of my life. And, and I hope we can bring a lot of other people along to do the same.
0: Yeah. I hope so too, man. That's awesome. Uh, Quick question for you: You got all of that variety out there, all those all those native species of grouse and pheasants and 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 huns. If you got a day to hunt, where are you going to go? Are You going to go after sharp tails? You going for a mixed bag? What do you do?
1: Well, uh, w- within uh, sight of my house, I can go up onto mountain ridges um, that last year had the best density of and uh, numbers of dusky grouse, which uh-huh. are also known as blue grouse, um, that I've I've ever seen in my years here. Um, And where I was finding them was up on uh, timbered ridges that had burned in 2000. We had a big fire season here in 2000, which turned a lot of uh, timbered ridges into now grassy ridges with fallen down dead black stumps uh, and a lot of brush coming up uh, between them. And the, the dusky grouse were just thick. Um, and I, I, ran my German short hair, uh, there last year and, and did really well. So that's going to be one of the first places I start, uh, the season in Montana starts September 1st. Um, you're at elevation. So it's some of the cooler places to hunt that early in, in the season. So it's, it's usually not too hard on the dog. Um, that's where I'll be going first. Let Great. me ask, well, let me ask
0: you one more thing. I forgot to work it into our conversation, but are you an Onyx hunt user? I am. And what has your experience been with it so far when did you start using it do you know
1: oh boy um probably eight or nine years ago
0: oh wow that long you've been using onyx
1: yeah wow Um, well i suppose
0: it really it really did get started i mean out west
1: in 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 missoula montana yeah got their headquarters here yeah and and so um i've been using it basically from uh you know the first day i Found out about it, I went and bought chips uh, that I stuck into uh, GPS units so that uh, we could use it not just for hunting, um, but I was also in charge of monitoring sage grouse populations in, in a couple big counties in, in western Montana. Um, uh, years ago, I, it was on a BLM contract um, to, to do all that work and uh trained a lot of technicians to go out and and count sage grouse and um we would issue them a, a, a GPS unit with a with a chip in it um so they always knew exactly where they were and who they needed to talk to if they needed to get somewhere so yeah we've been I've been a long time user of it
0: awesome so early adopter of the technology and obviously it's come a long ways and it continues to get better and better each year right. so you, you do you still use the chips do you just do you use it on your phone now what do you like
1: um, I actually am, I guess, old school. I, I still have a, uh, a Garmin Oregon unit that I stick a physical chip into and, okay. and uh, walk around with that.
0: Cool, cool. Good deal. Yeah, yeah we love Onyx. They're a, a proud uh, partner of the show, and this podcast is presented by them. So I uh, always love to ask the guests about it.
1: Yeah, I, I like it a lot. It's been a breakthrough for a lot of people.
0: Awesome. Good to hear it, Ben. Where can people find out more about, not only the project that we're talking about, but also the Big Sky Upland Bird Association.
1: Okay. Well, like everybody else, uh, we have a Facebook page. Uh, so you can find us there uh, where there's a, a membership form if you're interested in joining. Or, or you can just read old newsletters that we, we do post there um, uh, about a year after we publish them. Um, you can get the fresh newsletter if you want to uh, spend $25 a, a year membership. Uh, and that'll come right to your door. Um, it's PO Box nine zero zero five, Missoula, Montana five nine eight zero seven.
0: Awesome. I will make sure to grab the Facebook page link and I'll uh, I'll gather up whatever I can from you and make sure that's in the show notes so listeners can find it. Ben, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the Project Up and Podcast. This was fun. I'm hopeful you guys are successful in the project. I think, it's, I think it's really neat. I love Sharp Tails. I know you do as well, and I know a lot of the listeners do. So fingers crossed for a success. Good luck with it, and we'll keep in touch, Ben.
1: Thank you for all your work at Project Upland. You guys are doing a great job.
0: Appreciate it, Ben. Take care. Have a great 4th. Uh-huh. You too. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Dr. Callers, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gordian Sons Outfitters, Dakota 283 Kennels, and Trinity Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, share the podcast post. You can be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Up and Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt.